just let us in because all those psalms just put us right in the scene in those hours. And really, uh, it is amazing to, to think about all of the words that were, were put through there and how it was moving through these hours in the life of Jesus. These are significant hours in Jesus' life, powerful in, in what we are looking at in what Jesus is enduring. What we have seen up to this point at the, at, toward the end of Matthew 26 is that Jesus has been betrayed and he is arrested And he has already been put on trial. False witnesses have been brought forward and attempting to try to convict Jesus of a crime. But even their testimony couldn't agree, even though they were lying about it. And they finally are able to drum up a couple of guys with this super devastating charge. He said that he would tear down the temple and raise it up in three days. And of course, They didn't understand what Jesus meant by that. But Caiaphas, the high priest, says, well, that's all we need to know. He just challenges Jesus. Are you the son of God? And he goes, you've said it. And then he goes ahead and proclaims judgment that's going to fall upon the nation for their rejection of him. As all that is going on in this trial scene with the high priest and the Sanhedrin council, the camera moves to the outside. And that's where we're at in Matthew chapter 26 is remember that after Jesus has been betrayed and arrested, we're told that all the disciples forsook him and fled. But then a couple of verses later, it says, but then Peter turns around and starts trailing at a distance. And you will notice in verse 69 that we're told that Peter is now sitting outside the courtyard at where Jesus' trial is going on. I, I just It's important to color this text properly. There probably isn't a more dangerous place to be sitting than where Peter is sitting. Inside the house of this courtyard is where Jesus is on trial, where they are trying to find a way to kill him. They are pronouncing him guilty with false testimony and a bunch of liars. And Peter is just outside in the courtyard. Luke's account tells us here in the middle of the darkness, there's a fire burning in the center of the courtyard. And he and a number of the people who have been a part of this whole arrest thing are sitting around the fire. And there sits Peter. And you're told in verse 69 that one of the servant girls comes up to him and says, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. Can you imagine how terrified you'd be at that moment? You are trying to be secretive. You're trying to be incognito in the darkness in that circle. You're there in the court in that courtyard and you're sitting there. And one of the servant girls of the high priest comes up and says, you're with the Galilean. And you imagine the sheer terror that would just roll through your body as this person identifies you. And I want you to notice the, the derogatory nature of what she says. It's Jesus the Galilean. You're part of that crew, that group. 
It's a very derogatory term. You see that in the scriptures that being of Nazareth and being from Galilee, if you're in Judea and Jerusalem, you were looked at as backwater and you were you were not part of, of us civilized people. You're a Galilean. Even Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was considered in that way. And sometimes we forget that Countries are not monolithic in their culture and thinking. I mean, think about our country, how completely diverse each region is in our country. And you know how different that is. And you can even know in our own state that's true. West Palm is nothing like Tallahassee or Pensacola or Destin. We're completely different in culture, completely different in way of thinking, completely different lifestyle. And that's the way it was in Israel also. And so here are the southerners. Here are the the people of Judea. And Peter's a Galilean. And he goes, you're with Jesus the Galilean. I know you're one of them. And I want you to notice what what Peter does. I want you to notice that Peter doesn't say... Yeah, I am. Spent over three years with that guy. He changed my life. No, verse 70, he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean? Jesus, the Galilean, don't know what you're talking about. Don't know what you mean. You've got me confused. You've got me mixed up. Complete misunderstanding. You don't know what's going on. And I want you to notice that verse 71 says that Peter then goes to the entrance. So you can imagine here he is around the fire and one of the servant girls calls him out and says, you're with Jesus, the Galilean. I don't know what you're talking about. And he gets up and moves away. He goes to the entrance of where Jesus is inside on trial there. You can imagine trying to get away from that circumstance. You can imagine now he's over in the corner here. But that's not going to work. Verse 71. Another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders. So now imagine her talking to everybody in the courtyard. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Notice it's not a question. She's not going around going, you know, I kind of wonder. I think I've seen him before. This man was with Jesus. Okay, now, again, how terrifying is this? Where you are. I mean, this crowd could just grab you and take you right on inside and say, put him right next to Jesus. Hey, put him on trial too. He's right there. Notice Peter's response is stronger. In verse 72, he now takes an oath. An oath before God. As God lives, I do not know this man. Oath before God. And then notice that's not it. Verse 73. The bystanders now came up. Remember. In the second denial, that servant girl told all the bystanders. (laughs) Well, now all the group that's sitting out there by the fire now call come up to, to Peter in verse 73. And they say to Peter, certainly you are one of them. 
For your accent betrays you. We get that. I know you're not from here. I know you're a Galilean. Your accent gives you away. We understand that here in Florida. You can quickly know when someone's from the Northeast. And you go, you're not from here. And if someone's from the South, we go, you're not from here either. We don't speak in the same way as Northeasterners nor Southerners. In the same way in Israel. You're from Galilee. Your accent betrays you. Don't tell me you're not from there. Can you imagine a Southerner from Tennessee? Say, I'm not from Tennessee. You'd be like, give me a break. <laughs> of course you are. Your accent betrays you. You can't say otherwise. And that's what Peter said. Oh, I don't know the guy. They're just like, give me a break. The way you talk shows you're from Galilee. Parenthesis, why else are you here? Except the guy that's on trial inside. Notice how strong Peter responds this time. Each response is increasing intensity. First, I don't know what you're talking about. Second, an oath before God. Don't know the man. Third time, verse 74. He now pronounces... An oath and a curse. And says, I do not know the man. Now, don't read cursing like 21st century American. We go, oh, cursing, that's bad. Don't do that. Yeah, okay, that is bad. Don't do that. But that's not what was happening. To speak a curse is now strengthening the oath. He is saying, I take an oath before God and may God's curses rain on me. If I am lying, I do not know the man. He is as strong as he can possibly be in his denial. I don't know who this is. And no sooner does he say that, verse 74, the rooster crows. And such weighty words are given to us there in verse 75. And he remembered what Jesus said. And please, you've been with us in this series. It isn't. And he remembered what Jesus said three years ago, you know, because it was a foggy, distant memory about what Jesus had told him. And he remembered what Jesus said. And it was literally hours ago. Literally hours ago, Jesus said You'll deny me three times. And Peter said, I would never do such a thing. I would rather die with you. Three times. A solemn oath before God pronouncing curses upon himself if he's lying. That he does not know this man. I do want us to feel the weight of what Peter has done. Peter feels the weight of what he has done. In verse 75, we read these chilling words. He went out. And he wept bitterly. Imagine the sting and imagine the hurt of the moment of betraying your Lord in your words like that. You have literally just disowned him with an oath and a curse on top of it saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I do not know this man. And I want us to appreciate the severity of what Peter has done. I don't know that we always really appreciate it. Think about how many times the New Testament says, you better not deny me. 
The New Testament is filled with it. If you're faithless, he'll remain faithful. But then there's like in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12. But if you deny him, he will deny you. And by the way, don't forget that Jesus taught that. Jesus expressly said, you acknowledge me before other people. I will acknowledge you before my father. But if you deny me before others, I also will deny him before my father in heaven. Peter has just done that. This is no small thing. You shouldn't read this and go, oh, Peter denied Jesus three times. Okay, you know, moving on to Acts. There's Peter. Look at him. This is bad. This is a horrible sin. This is a serious sin. He has not only denied Jesus, but he has denied Jesus three times. And not only denied it three times, he's denied it with an oath and denied it with a curse. He has been adamant that he doesn't know this man. It is a very serious sin. And that's why verse 75 leaves us with him going out and weeping bitterly. I, I, I can't begin to imagine the overwhelming pain and hurt that Peter had to feel as soon as that rooster went off. That had to cut all the way down. Especially when you so strongly said you wouldn't do this. And then you did. I want you to notice that Matthew connects us to another account, though. How many times I tell you bad chapter breaks, the spots that are tough. This is certainly one of those because it wants to also draw our attention to another disciple at this time. And our other disciple is Judas. You will notice in the first two verses of Matthew 27 that we are told that This is the conclusion of that trial that we read about last week. He has been convicted and they have deemed him worthy of death. He is a blasphemer. He's calling himself the son of God. Mourning has now come in in verse 1 of chapter 27. And they have all put their plot together. They have now taken counsel and they have Jesus where they want him. They are going to put him to death. Verse 2, they're going to take him now to Pilate so that Pilate will execute him. So you can imagine him being led away in chains. Here he goes. They're taking him to Pilate. And I want you to notice how Matthew records these events that verse three. Now, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. That's an interesting way to say that. The whole trial scene goes down and Jesus is not set free. But you can imagine them hauling him away to where the Roman governor is Pilate. And Judas becomes aware of that. And it says that when he saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He's feeling this too. He is watching Jesus now go off and knows that he's condemned to death. And Judas now has a response. And it says that he changed his mind. And notice what he does in verse 3. 
he brings back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders. You can imagine he goes in there where they've gathered and set Jesus off on trial. He's being hauled away. Judas now goes in there. He's got the money that they paid him with. And he has changed his mind. Verse 4 saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. I want you to appreciate what he says. Because these look like repentant words without excuse. He doesn't blame anybody else. I've done this. I've betrayed him. And he even points out he's innocent. You guys just condemned him to death. He's innocent. I have betrayed innocent blood. This isn't right. Here's the money back. We need to undo this. Press rewind. I take it back. Make it stop. And I want you to notice verse 4. The chief priests, the religious leaders, the elders of the day, the Sanhedrin council, these are supposed to be the spiritual of the spiritual in the nation of Israel. In verse 4, they say, what's that to us? We don't care. So what? I've betrayed innocent blood. This isn't right. This needs to stop. Let's, Let's fix this. And they go, don't care. Whatever. Doesn't matter. We don't care what you think. We don't care what you say. We are not interested in you, Judas. What is that to us? See to it yourself. What a shocking response that is given. Judas, nothing left to do. Verse 5, he throws down the pieces of silver in the temple. He's not keeping this money. He throws it back to them. But then the sad words. And he throws back the money into the temple. And he goes out and he hangs himself. You know, it is a stunning response that these are supposed to be the religious leaders. And Judas comes in broken. I've done wrong. I'm betrayed innocent blood. And the religious leaders say, I don't care. What's that to us? And and you want to go, you're supposed to be the priests, right? You're supposed to be the priests who were bringing people to God. You're supposed to be the priests that are offering sacrifices for the sinful. You're supposed to be the ones that are drawing people to God. And you tell the man who says, I've done wrong. I've betrayed innocent blood. Here, take the money back. Don't care. Take care of it yourself. We're not interested. And since there's no response by these religious leaders, you see him swallowed up. And he goes out and he kills himself. The awfulness is not over. Look at verse 6. The chief priests take the pieces of silver and say, it's not lawful for them to put... It in the treasury since it's blood money. 
Every time I read that, I go, now you care about the law? Where has that been for the last 24 hours? Now you care about the law? You didn't care about the law with the, with the trial. You didn't care about the law with the false witnesses. You didn't care that the testimony didn't agree. You didn't care about anything about the law when it came to the trial. You don't care about Judas who's telling you he's innocent. He's not worthy of death. Here, let's undo this. Take the money back. Oh, no, now we have money. Now we'll care about the law. How convenient. Unbelievable. And so we're told that in verses 8 through 10 that they use the money to buy a field that becomes a burial plot for foreigners. Which Matthew wants to make a point just shows everything even up to this point is still according to the plan of God. Jeremiah and Zechariah talked about this. Nothing's gone off the rails. Nothing's taken a left turn. And oh, this isn't the plan. Just exactly as God had predetermined this was going to be. It is going just as it's supposed to be. But let's talk about these two men for a minute. And how Matthew puts their stories together. Because I want us to think about their catastrophic failures. That Judas, of course, a huge failure. We readily identify that. You have betrayed the Lord for money. We talked about that betrayal a couple of weeks ago. And now here's Peter, another catastrophic failure. You have denied the Lord, not only denied the Lord, you denied him three times. You denied him three times with an oath and a curse. You have laid every layer that you possibly could to say, I don't know this man. And friends, I think we understand that when we fail spiritually, how easily and quickly Satan jumps in and tells us, you need to quit. You're a terrible disciple. What are you doing? You should give up. You are a failure. You are unworthy of even walking in this building. Who do you think you are acting like you're a disciple with your catastrophic spiritual failures? Oh, Satan comes loud and hard when we fall down. He is right there to seize the moment. And he wants to tell us in our time of darkness, you should leave, you should give up, you should quit. Or in Judah's case, you might even say, I should do even worse than that. And I want us to see that our catastrophic failures leave us with a choice in that moment. There is an important choice that has to be made in that moment. One of the lessons that I tried to communicate to you the last two Sunday nights when we've been talking about the goodness of guilt and shame is that it is so easy to allow our guilt and allow our shame to swallow us up into despair. And God does not want that. But the point that Jeremiah was making was that God wants our guilt and shame to move us to repentance. That is God's intent when we are feeling that moment, when we are low in the ground and we're like, I need to quit. I need to give up. I'm unworthy. I should just stop. It isn't worth it anymore. I need to put it all aside. That's not what God wants. 
You never read anywhere in the scriptures where the person catastrophically fails God and they're feeling the weight of their sin and the weight of their guilt. And God says, good, I want you to stew in that for a while. He never says that. He never says, I want you just to let that simmer on your heart for a year. Just let it make you feel real bad for a while. He never does that. He never says, good, sit there from the corner for a while. No, he doesn't want us wallowing in the failures, but he wants us to move forward in confession and repentance. Please remember what Jesus told them. You're all going to fall away because of me tonight. He's right there going, you are all going to catastrophically fail in just a few hours tonight. And notice what he says. And after I'm raised up, I'm going to go get some new disciples. Because you all are useless. Man, terrible, awful, spiritual people you are. You all need to quit. You all need to give up. We act like that's what the New Testament says. I just need to stop. I just need to quit. You know, who could ever forgive me? I've done so much wrong. I've done so much sin. You don't understand what I've done. Notice what Jesus is saying. You're going to fall away tonight. You are going to fail catastrophically. But here's his wonderful response. I'm going to meet you on the other side in Galilee. When I'm raised up, we're going to keep going. You are all going to fail. But when I was raised from the grave, I'm going to lead my men again. And I'm going to lead the way to Galilee. He didn't say, I'm going to get new disciples. He didn't say, you all need to just quit. He doesn't say, you all just need to give up. He doesn't call them worthless. He doesn't say, let's just be done with you guys. I need a new crew. And sometimes what we want to do with our sins is we say, well, you, Brent, you don't know what I've done. Because the sins that I've committed and the things that I've done, I can't undo them. You don't understand. There's no reverse. There's no rewind. There's no clean start. There's no refresh. You don't understand what I've done. And I want you to see in these two men, they're in that same spot. There's no undo for either of them. Judas can't undo the betrayal. He tried. Didn't happen. Peter can't undo the denial. He said it. He took an oath before God. There's no undoing it. There's no way to fix this. Now what do you do to fix? Hey, Peter, how do you fix this? What's the big fix? Why do you think Judas kills himself? Because what's the big fix? How do you fix this? You can't fix this. Your actions got him killed. How do you fix that? There's no fixing that. I'll just ask you, what do you think he wanted his disciples to do at this moment? They both catastrophically fail and there is no fixing it. There's no undoing it. There's no rewind. What do you think Jesus wanted them to do right here? Do you think Jesus would come to these two disciples and say to them, well, you just need to quit. You just need to give up. 
You're unworthy of being my disciple. You just need to go away. Or that you should do something worse like Judas did. Is that what Jesus would have said? It's either do you want to give up or do you want to get up? And I submit to you that one of the amazing things that Jesus over and over again is communicating to his disciples is I want you to get back up and I want you to move forward stronger than before because you've been strengthened by this failure. I want you to do an exercise with me. You don't have to share, but just do an exercise with me in your minds right now. And I want you to put into your minds all the sins that you can think of that you've been committing and have committed. I want to, for you to put into your mind the guilt, the shame, the hurt of the sins that you've done. I want you to put into your mind the times you've denied Jesus, the times you've betrayed him, the times that you've let him down, the times when you have failed him badly. Just the time, we could all say, oh yeah, it's been a million times, but there are things that we keep in our minds that are waiting. I want you to hold those in your mind for a moment. And now I want you to ask yourself, what do you think Jesus wants you to do? Do you think Jesus wants you to give up? Or do you think Jesus wants you to get up? The beauty of what we are seeing in Judas and in Peter is he made it clear even before they failed. I want you to get back up and I'm going to lead the way with you again. I'm going before you to Galilee. You're going to fail and I don't want you to stay down. I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to say, well, I can't ever serve the Lord again. I'm too unworthy or I can't belong or any of those kinds of things that Satan puts in our hearts and in our minds. He is the one telling us to quit, give up, end it all, all of those dark things that come into us. Jesus answer is get up and move forward stronger than before. And be strengthened by that failure. Now you've seen your blind spot. Now you know your weakness. Now you know where you need to pay some attention to. And be stronger for it. Isn't that what John's trying to tell us here in in, in his, his letter, 1 John 1? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to condemn us left and right as unworthy disciples who are terrible and should never even dog the doors of a building again. He's faithful and he's righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise he's making. I'm faithful to it. I will forgive you. I will forgive your sins. Whatever you're holding in your mind, whatever guilt you're carrying, whatever you think you say is too much, too great, too awful, can't be undone. Here's Jesus saying, I'm forgiving that. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, quit and give up right now. No. He says, when you sin, you know you have an advocate with the Father. 
who forgives your sins and not only your sins, but the sins of the whole world. What is he trying to tell us, friends? Get up, move forward stronger, be strengthened by your failure. God does not want you to stay down. And as catastrophic as your sins may be, the choice comes to you. Give up or get up. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh, thank you so much, Lord, for these promises. Lord, thank you for recording the failures of two of your disciples to show us how you receive us. And Lord, it is wonderful to think that in all of our sins and in all of our guilt and all of our pain, you've promised to take us back if we'll come to you. Lord, it's amazing to look at the life of Peter who denied you so adamantly and yet moved forward as a powerful disciple of yours. Lord, help us to be like Peter. Help us to make the same decision that he made to get up and to move forward as your disciples. Lord, help us to remember when Satan comes into the times of our darkness and when we feel like failures and we feel like we cannot do this, we feel like we have sinned too much, when we feel like there is no undoing what we've done. Help us in those moments to see the choice that you have put before us. And help us not to fail as Judas failed, but to go forward like Peter did. And Lord, thank you for your son that makes that possible. We are grateful to know that we have an advocate standing there interceding on our behalf. And we know that it's through his death and resurrection that we can be made clean. Thank you for your faithfulness and righteousness. So that if we confess our sins, we know you are forgiving us. Help us to know that. And to experience that, and Lord, if guilt is in our hearts and yet we're forgiven, would you take that away from us and help us to see the wonderful light of new life that you give to us every time you forgive us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus today, to turn away from sin, and to make a decision to follow him with all of your heart. What a beautiful, beautiful picture we see of our Lord and Savior who will forgive us if we will confess those sins, if we will get back up and we will move forward with him. The invitation is to you this morning. Can we help you do that? Are you in a space in your life right now where you need spiritual assistance? Can we help you do that? Dan and I would hear and we would love to help you in your walk with God. Any way we could be of a service to you to help you move forward with Jesus. We're here for you. If you have not been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and started a new life with him, that is where it all begins. Get right with God today before it is too late because there is not a better feeling than having sins washed away and pressing the reset button that God will give you. Can we help you? Let us know while we stand and while we sing.